Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Welcome to Concord Matters here on Worldwide KFUO as we get to join in this conversation about our unity and our concord in the faith, because that concord matters. And here on Concord Matters, you are joining myself, Pastor Peter Ill, guest hosting on behalf of Pastor Sean Smith, uh, who is out taking care of some things with his family, Uh, but he looks forward to returning soon. And joining today for this conversation of our Concord that matters is the Reverend Dr. Jeff Boyle, who serves as pastor at Trinity and uh, Grace Lutheran Churches in Wichita, Kansas. Uh, Pastor Boyle, it is wonderful to have you here with us today to talk about the Athanasian Creed. It's a joy to be with you, Peter. Thanks for inviting me on. So glad to get to talk about this common faith, but maybe maybe we need to pause because there's a lot of people who have some some angst, maybe, about the Athanasian Creed. I know when we get close to Trinity Sunday, when we confess this creed at the church that I serve, we end up uh, having the question, Pastor, are we going to say that whole thing? Uh, it's a little bit long, and it's it's different from the other creeds that we have, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. How is the Athanasian Creed different from the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed? Well, first of all, it's long. It is super long. And it's also not as common among our usage. And so for that reason alone, it's got this bit of a strange aura to it. But even more so, it is, it's got a different feel and a different flavor, especially in the first half of it, where it is so strongly trying to clearly teach the distinctions of the three persons in the Trinity, while also so clearly and forcefully binding them together in their unity. And so there's almost an academic or a scholastic character to the way in which it is so forcefully teaching. Whereas it seems that the apostles in the Athanasian, or apostles in the Nicene Creed, which have a much more liturgical usage, are more confession proper. So why do we talk about the Athanasian Creed? Why do we call it the Athanasian Creed? Good. Uh, First of all, we should maybe mention what a creed is and and where we get the language of creed before we get into the first part of Athanasian. Absolutely. Good catch. Um, and, And I think part of that is to say that it simply comes from the language of I believe, credo in Latin. And so it's a confession. And when we confess, we are saying back to God, what he has first said to us. And in in Greek, it's the homologeo, to say the same thing. And so what we confess in the creeds is true. It is who God is and how he has revealed himself to us in the very language that he's given to us from the scriptures through the tradition of the apostles and the prophets. And so when we say we have a creed, 
That means now that we are talking about not just the fact that we believe, but what it is or the content and substance of that which we believe. Or as we hear in uh, well, both St. Paul's letters to Timothy, as well as uh, the epistle of St. Jude, that there is a faith that is to be guarded, that is handed down from the apostles. And that substance of faith is what we are now giving voice to in these creeds. And each of them, the Apostles' Creed, uh, has its perhaps earliest beginnings in the very baptismal liturgy of the church, where it is a very simple, concise confession of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We get the language in our small catechism of the three articles of the creed, and each then uh, unfolding a little bit more of who the Father is, the Son is, the Spirit. The Nicene Creed comes in its own particular context of polemics in the 4th century with the Arian controversy. You have in 325 the beginnings of the Council of Nicaea, which ends up uh, giving us this creed in its fullness, uh, 381 at the Council of Constantinople. And in that time, we see great debate, uh, defense of the faith, who the Father is, and particularly how he relates to the Son, and whether the Son, Jesus Christ, is fully God of God and light of light. And so, uh, to what extent is Jesus God? That was uh, Arians, Arius's claim was that there was a time when the Son was not. And so the Nicene Creed is a firm rebuttal and confession that he truly is God himself. Uh, one of the key players in that debate, those councils, and in fact, who spent most of his time as a bishop exiled because the Arians did take control, was a man named St. Athanasius from uh, the very populated town of Alexandria, northern Egypt. And so here you have Athanasius being this great defender and at the point of the Council of Nicaea, a deacon, but one who defended the faith running through the scriptures to argue how it is that we are to receive from the scriptures the confession that Jesus Christ is true God. And in fact, one thing that I'm most impressed with with Athanasius's very lengthy treatment here is his use of the Old Testament. We would, I think, first and foremost jump to John's gospel or something along those lines where it's so clear. Uh, but he, he makes use of Proverbs 8 and, and other texts as from the Psalms and so forth to make the case of the three in one and the one in three. And it's for this reason that we start to get into this Athanasian Creed, which is a confession that takes up Athanasius's strong defense, even though it does not seem like it was Athanasius who wrote the creed. And I'll uh, simply step back now a moment and think through the fact that what we have received is called the Athanasian Creed. It's in our Book of Concord, uh, accepted as one of the so-called three ecumenical creeds, uh, which speaks of its wide acceptance. 
Uh, and yet we should say it is a particularly Western creed. Uh, for instance, our Orthodox brothers would strongly stand with us on the Nicene Creed. They've also received that through council. But, uh, but the Athanasian Creed is a Latin creed. And it seems, though, attributed to Athanasius, even in the 16th century, we had uh, an idea that it wasn't and, in fact, couldn't have been. First of all, it's written in Latin. And Athanasius wrote in Greek. And so there's a very clear difficulty there. We do have later Greek translations of it, but those seem to come from about the 9th or 10th centuries. So uh, very early on, we have this Athanasian creed in Latin. About the mid to late 5th century is our first evidence of it, which is also uh, fairly well after Athanasius has died. And so we see it it seems first from Caesarius, the Bishop of Arles. Uh, this is Southern France where he is serving. And in fact, some have argued that Caesarius wrote the creed. Um, in any case, we don't know. We don't have any signed copies or anything like that, but we do have very early attestation of this creed being used and quoted in length by Caesarius already in the late fifth century. I think Caesarius lived somewhere between 470 or four, something like that, and 540. So is it fair to say that while Athanasius probably didn't write this creed, he very much, uh, it's in his tradition? Absolutely. And I think that's why, in fact, even our Lutheran confessing fathers would, in their book of Concord, list it as the Athanasian Creed, though they were already in doubt that Athanasius could have written it. But because it so strongly upholds the very idea, confession, defense of Athanasius, it's certainly a fitting tribute to him, even if he personally had no hand in it. Great. Um, so why would why is the Athanasian Creed helpful to Christians today? Well, I think part of it comes from our own, uh, well, I would say maybe two things in particular, but our own confusion over the Trinity. I think it was St. Augustine that maybe said that you could quicker empty the ocean with a shovel than finish plumbing the depths of the Trinity with our human language. And I like that quote. That's good. It's wonderful. Uh, and it's, it's an idea that there is such a depth to this mystery that apart from God revealing himself through his word, we would have no recourse to speak back of who he is. And even this idea of the Trinity, it's so confounding in, in the sense of, we constantly are looking for ways of uh, maybe analogies to understand this. You know, we just celebrated St. Patrick's Day earlier this week, and there's no St. Patrick's Day anymore without uh, Lutheran satires, St. Patrick's bad analogies. Uh, in those, what we find is how tempting it is to try to, especially for children, explain what well, the Trinity is like. And then whether we fill it with an apple, which has its skin and its, and its flesh and its core, or uh, whether it's like water that could be ice or vapor or water, I mean, all of these things break down. 
And each of these tends to, in fact, represent a particular heresy that was being expressed in these first few centuries of the Christian church. So when we're dealing with the third and fourth centuries, in particular, their Trinitarian expositions, we're dealing with people trying to figure out how it is that there are three persons, each subsistent in himself, while also sharing in a unity of essence. And the language is just so particular, precise, and even that, or our own language in its full precision, is only grasping at what our Lord has begun to reveal through his word. And so, as far as that goes, this creed takes a very careful um, and, and tempered way of confessing who God is so that we would not fall into one of these heretical temptations. And I think we need that. On the other side of things, we also need the repetition. And that's one thing this creed, especially in the first half, does wonderfully, is that it is repeating over and over as it runs through each of the attributes. And by the way, in a minute, we should probably read this so that people have this fresh, or at least some of the language in their ears. But there is this repetition that children need and that we as the children of God need. And so to come back to it over and over again affirms and confesses who God is rather than trying to explain who he is when we we certainly can hardly do that. I would love to read the Athanasian Creed and the first half of it that we're really discussing today in a second. But before we get into that, you had mentioned that Athanasius in his writings was really keen to use uh, Old Testament passages as he talked about the Trinity. How does the Athanasian Creed kind of carry on that tradition? Uh, can we see echoes of the Old Testament, uh, like Genesis and Proverbs 8 maybe, uh, continuing on through the Creed here? Well, certainly when it speaks of his attributes, one of the first attributes that's listed is his uh uncreated nature. So the Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Spirit uncreated. And, and part of this uncreated, uh, part, of the, part of the essence of that is to say that there is a creation. And the sort of ontological line that separates creation from its creator is to demarcate God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is all on the creator side. While all that comes that we've come to know in our, our very earth, as well as all the gifts of body and soul that we have here, those are created blessings to us. And so right from the beginning, part of who God is, is the one as Father, as Son, as Spirit, speaking this world into being, each creator none created. And so there's the attributes. There's also his almighty, his, his eternal, his infinite. All of this is to designate who he is as God, as uh, in that way opposed to all of the things that are natural to creation. We are limited. We are uh, finite beings. We are um, not eternal, but temporal and, and mortal. And so there's, uh, there is this very strong division at the point of creation itself 
that I think is flowing through the attributes this creed is extolling. So now we have a chance to hear that uh, Athanasian Creed, and today we're going to be especially taking up the first part of it. Uh, for those who are listening, feel free to, uh, if you have a Lutheran service book handy or your uh, edition of Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, uh, we use the reader's edition here on Concord Matters. Uh, it's on page 319 in Lutheran service book, and the translations are the same. And it goes like this. Whoever desires to be saved must, above all, hold the Catholic faith. Whoever does not keep it whole and undefiled will, without doubt, perish eternally. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance. For the Father is one person, the Son is another, and the Holy Spirit is another. But the Godhead of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father, uncreated. The Son, uncreated. The Holy Spirit, uncreated. The Father, infinite. The Son, infinite. The Holy Spirit, infinite. The Father, eternal. The Son, eternal. The Holy Spirit, eternal. And yet, there are not three eternals, but one eternal, just as there are not three uncreateds or three infinites, but one uncreated and one infinite. In the same way, the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, the Holy Spirit Almighty. And yet there are not three Almighties, but one Almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And yet there are not three gods, but one God. So the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord. And yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. Just as we are compelled by the Christian truth to acknowledge each distinct person as God and Lord, so also are we prohibited by the Catholic religion to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father is not made, nor created, nor begotten by anyone. The Son is neither made nor created, but begotten of the Father alone. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor begotten, but proceeding. Thus there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. And in this Trinity, none is before or after another, none is greater or less than another, but the whole three persons are co-eternal with each other, and co-equal, so that in all things, as has been stated above, the Trinity in unity and unity in Trinity is to be worshipped. Therefore, whoever desires to be saved must think thus about the Trinity. Uh, that's as much of the Athanasian Creed as we will uh, tackle today, but 
that sure does give us quite a bit to talk about. Uh, Pastor Boyle, one of the first things that I notice reading through this creed and something that comes up uh, when we get to confess it is uh, folks will often ask, wait a minute, it talks about the Catholic faith, but in our church we're Lutherans. Can, can we use this creed? Is this something that we really believe? Yes, very good. And, you know, one of the things that's often simply pointed out that we pastors do for the sake of calming the conscience of our members is to be very clear when we see that it is a lowercase c. And and so as far as that distinction goes, this Catholic is a word that comes from the Greek. In fact, to my knowledge, I think it first gets used by St. Ignatius of Antioch around 110 AD, so very early on. But it's a Greek word that means according to the whole, uh, kataholos. And so you've got this idea of a faith that is not, um, it's not a particular regional, denominational, or parochial faith. It's not the sort of Lutherans like their potlucks with, uh, you know, sauerkraut and so forth. It is a universal faith. It is the faith that for all times and all places held by all. And so when that's the understanding, the question becomes less about whether it's Catholic or not. Is what follows universal? And, and if so, then there should be no struggle in terms of speaking of the Catholic faith. In fact, that's a, a slight frustration for some when it comes to the Nicene Creed. Looking back at that is where we say, I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. The language there originally is Catholic. Now, uh, if I remember some of that history right, it was, in fact, some Roman Catholics, even before Luther in, Ger in, the, in Germany, where they were translating some of the creed into German. And the Greek word kataholos, Catholic, came into German as christlich, which is to simply say the universal faith and church. And so uh, as Lutherans took from that, we kept our christlich and our Christian, and not as an opposition to Catholic, which is why I think here it strikes us all the more because we do retain the language of Catholic here. Um, perhaps we should retain it also in the Nicene Creed as the original writing of that rather than translation. Nevertheless, the word means universal. And so the question is, is this the universal faith? And, and with that, real quickly, I had mentioned Jude, but that's what follows the Catholic faith, that is to say the substance, the, the confession, uh, this is, there's a content to it. And the Catholic content means that this is the same content believed by all Christians everywhere. The fact that that's the case allows us to continue to confess this with the same vigor and joy as Caesarius of Arles and the 5th and 6th century Christians did when it first came out. That is a bold statement to say that this creed is is the whole faith that uh, every Christian who should be able to be considered a Christian needs to confess this. Otherwise, the creed's pretty clear. Otherwise, you're condemned. Uh, that's that's really serious business. 
um, it almost seems it almost seems pretentious or maybe arrogant to say such a thing. Well, and on that, look at um, what's these are uh, the creed is divided in different numberings across various traditions. Our Lutheran service book, and as you say, um, it's the same translation in the reader's edition of the Book of Concord. Uh, what appears to us as verse or stanza 26 is a conclusion to this first part where you finished reading, and it says it quite plainly. Therefore, whoever desires to be saved must think thus about the Trinity. And in fact, the very last stanza 40 there, uh, it concludes the whole creed in a similar way. This is the Catholic faith. Whoever does not believe it faithfully and firmly cannot be saved. Now, those are, uh, those are statements around which there's no wiggle room. There's, there's no pushing it, bending it, uh, having it part or piecemeal. It must be faithfully and firmly believed. And without such, it is not possible to be saved. The sort of language is troubling, to be sure, for many because we're, uh, I don't know, maybe we're mid Midwest nice and, and would rather everyone just sort of get along. The problem is confessions have consequences. We are saying who God is. And if God is who he is, then he can't not be that. And for someone to say he is not that is to then have another God. And so this, at the point of confession, every confession always has naturally and necessarily its own, uh, what we might call rejection, or the Latin is dominant. In Greek, it's anathema. This is the language St. Paul uses, by the way. When you look at Galatians chapter 1, when he talks about uh, how someone has quickly come in and bewitched them. And even he then goes on to say, if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be, and then the Greek word is anathema, let him be accursed, damned, cut off. Uh, that's the language that this Athanasian creed is upholding. And it comes straight from the scriptures it also is found throughout our Book of Concord. As we run through the Augsburg Confession, for example, we confess this, that, and the other thing, and we reject, or in Latin, dominant, those who would teach otherwise. And so there are very clear lines being drawn. It also pulls us into or calls us into recognizing the weightiness of what it means to say back to God who he is. That this isn't something we treat flippantly or carelessly, but reverently, devoutly, and with this full weight of 
call on our very life and being. So uh, I think as far as that goes, this is, this is what it means to have a creed, for it to be a, a demand on your life, and in fact, to have consequences for the life hereafter. It strikes me that as we talk about confessing, and every time we confess, we then end up rejecting something, that this creed, the Athanasian Creed, confesses truths about God, especially our triune God. And the second part will go on to confess things about our Lord Jesus. As we confess that, uh, sometimes the church today is pushed to think about confessing things um, that aren't so much about God, but about life in this world. We'll have a chance to talk more, though, about our confession about God and to focus on our that confession of the Trinity after this short break, and then we'll be back here on KFUO for some more Concord Matters. Uh, I am Pastor Peter Ill, sitting in for Pastor Sean Smith, and with us today is Pastor Jeff Boyle of Grace and Trinity Lutheran Churches in Wichita, Kansas. We'll be right back. Greetings, saints of our Lord. This is Pastor Brady Finner. I am humbled to be the new host of Thy Strong Word every weekday from 11 to noon. We will receive the gift of God's Word and Paul's epistles for our new series. We will travel with Paul from city to city, from letter to letter, as he encourages, exhorts, proclaims, and points us to Christ and Him crucified for your forgiveness. Join us, live or on demand, because God has gifts to give for you. Welcome back to Concord Matters here on Worldwide KFUO as Pastor Jeff Boyle from Trinity and Grace Lutheran Churches in Wichita, Kansas is joining us today, especially me, Pastor Peter Ill, as we get to talk about the Athanasian Creed, about what it says about our God in Trinity and in unity, and in what that means for us as Christians and as the church. Pastor Boyle, we got as far as about a sentence and a half in so far, uh, but it's really striking that the, the first thing it talks about, as soon as it says, this is the, the whole or the Catholic faith, whoever desires to be saved uh, must keep it, it goes on to say the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity, in Trinity and unity. And so it seems that the first thing that we're called to do by the Athanasian Creed is to worship. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think this is one of the most striking things about the Creed is, as I said earlier, as much as it has an academic or scholastic flavor to it, where it is so intentional to, to teach, to catechize the distinctions of Father, Son, and Spirit, and yet the unity of each of them as God and Lord, it is not primarily a thing of the head. The Catholic faith is not primarily a list. It is, in fact, a worship. And to begin this creed that way, by saying that the substance of our Catholic faith, of what we believe, teach, and confess, is, in fact, our worship, it will not let us 
have this be simply something for the academics among us. It is for everyone. And this is why it's so vitally important. It's not just an academic debate, but it appeals to the life of all Christians that we worship. That is, we not only confess with our lips, but believe with our hearts and live with our bodies that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is God. And this call to worship, I think, is profound. It also then leaves us with a sort of reverence for this creed that is matched or at least given expression to by a reverence in our worship in the sanctuary, where we say back to God what he has said to us, and we do so with the same awe, with the same faith and devotion as we are confessing here. It strikes me that the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed that we use often in our uh, church services, that we attribute so much to worship, they don't talk in this way of, of stating, this, this is worship. But here in the Athanasian Creed, which we sometimes want to relegate to uh, the Bible study or to confirmation class or just to, this is something that pastors talk about, is the one that mentions very specifically, we do worship here. And this creed, this confession of our faith is worshipful. It seems like an interesting contrast. It is interesting to think through the uses of these creeds. So I had mentioned earlier that the Apostles' Creed is... Uh, Luther calls it the children's creed, and not because it's uh, less powerful or mature than the others, but because it is first given to children. It is the baptismal creed, and so it has a particular function at the font, which is why when at our church, when we have a baptism, for instance, we'll do that at the beginning of the service, and we'll confess the Apostles' Creed at that point, uh, with and on behalf of the, the infant perhaps being baptized. But then as we go through the service, we will still confess, following the gospel reading, the Nicene Creed. And that's because the creeds are not merely interchangeable, but the Nicene Creed, which is the ecumenical creed par excellence that all Christians have always held, is the creed that is most tied to the Lord's Supper. Because of its strong, intentional extolling of the Son as God of God and light of light, that seems to have been most palpably received in the Eucharist. And so as we together receive the body and blood of Jesus, we are receiving the body and blood of God. And so the Nicene Creed is to be confessed at every celebration of the Lord's Supper. The baptismal creed is for the family at the home. The baptisms, to be sure, but also daily as the family gathers around in its own confession of who God is and, uh, and the worship of, at the family altar. The Athanasian Creed, you mentioned this at your church, uh, typically gets confessed, so to speak, once a year. And I don't know, and, and I'm ashamed to say it, but I don't know where that tradition really came from. It doesn't seem to be universal, and it doesn't even seem to be universal among uh, the Lutheran churches. I 
grew up as a Roman Catholic and frankly never really knew the Athanasian Creed. It wasn't confessed on Sundays uh, when I was growing up. The Lutheran Church that I did join did have that practice, and so I came to know it that way, but had never heard it even before that. Many Lutheran churches will use it as uh, a replacement of the Nicene Creed on Trinity Sunday, largely to extol this strong confession of the Trinity. However, uh, that's not our practice, even though I do serve a Trinity Lutheran church. What we do is on Trinity Sunday, use the uh, Athanasian Creed as, I, as our gradual. And so there's a, a place between the epistle and the gospel readings where we will use, or between the Old Testament and the epistle readings, where we will uh, responsively work our way through this creed. And that's again because uh, I remember being convicted in reading a, uh, a book by, I think it was Arthur Carl Peepcorn, that was The Conduct of the Service. And uh, John, uh, Charles McLean and Arthur Carl Peepcorn. And there's a little line in that when it's at the creed where it says, We do not have the authority to replace the Nicene Creed with any other confession. Now, whether he's right on that or not uh, is, is one matter, but it struck me that this is a creed, the Nicene Creed, that the church split over, uh, St. Athanasius went into exile for, uh, it was uh, really that which rocked the Roman Empire in the fourth century, and from which, that context, we get some of the greatest and most eloquent fathers of the church that were called in to defend this faith. And then I start to think, who am I to replace it with something that is not perhaps universally known or confessed? That being said, I think an honor does need to be done to it, especially in, in worship. And that's why we use it as the gradual, as a way of saying this is something that is part of our tradition and it's beautiful and ought to be extolled. But then again, in its proper place within the liturgical life of the church. In other words, you get two creeds, uh, yes. not just one. And and we've had a baptism on Trinity Sunday, which gave us a hat trick of creeds. Nice. That's wonderful. A hat trick of creeds. I like that. Uh, so as we go on with this, this worshipful use of the Athanasian Creed, as it begins to speak about God, it describes God as almighty and as uncreated and infinite and eternal, um, as God and as Lord. But, and I think before you mentioned that those, those we refer to as attributes, but usually, if I remember my own confirmation class and the confirmation classes that I teach, when we ask people to describe God and to list his attributes, we usually use uh, what I think of as the omnis, that he is omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent. We talk about how God is immutable and doesn't change, but those descriptions and these descriptions of uncreated and almighty and Lord and eternal and uncreated, those seem to be uh, different words. What, what are we able to say here in the Athanasian Creed about God being uncreated and eternal and almighty? And why are those particular words so important in our worship? Good. Uh, I think it's a good point. 
the omnis, as you call them, are uh, traditionally what we speak of as the attributes of God. Uh, of course, there is overlap with this. Uh, to be uh, omni, well, let's say uh, omnipresent, omniscient, uh, omnipotent, we get some of that in terms of almighty, eternal, infinite. So, so there is overlap there, but of course, they're not the same words, and partly because these are later words, later dogmatic designations of philosophical reflection or theological reflection on who God is, but they are not primarily the language of God's own self-revelation in Scripture. What we find in Scripture is, I am God. I am the Lord. There is no other. Isaiah, by the way, is beautiful on, on this front of, especially in chapters 40 to 55, where he over and over and over is a sort of marching sentry walking through, identifying who he is in contradistinction to the idols that are being fashioned in their hands. And as such, he is creator. I make light. I create darkness, as he says in chapter 45. There's this robust creator voice. And so to be uncreated is to take up the language that scripture gives us. To be infinite is, again, a bit of a philosophical category, but even there to speak of his being without limit, without circumscription, without, uh, he, he breaks all bonds, he is all places. You get some of the language of Psalm, you know, the Psalms uh, where we have, uh, for instance, when I, if I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I descend into the depths, even there your hand shall find me. There's, there is no escape in that way from uh, God himself. And so the language here is, I think, meant to uphold the scriptural way of thinking, the eternal God, the only God, the uncreated, the almighty. And I love that. Jumping back for a second, yeah. you said that God is without circumscription. What does that mean? <laughs> Good. That's a another philosophical later term that probably doesn't need to be used all that much, but it does mean in this sense to be without being in, inscribed, to be uh, without a border or a boundary about his very being. And so this language comes into the Lutheran confessions quite strongly when Luther in particular is uh, in his great confession concerning the Lord's Supper, which is taken up in our formula of Concord, when he is speaking of the different modes of Christ's presence, and when he speaks of him, uh, for instance, walking the path to Jericho, he is circumscribed in his very being and can be traced as he moves from one place to the other. On the other hand, he has another mode of being which is uncircumscribed, which is where he is and fills all things and is in all things. And so there is this uncircumscribed, uh, which is the proper essence, so to speak, of, of the divinity, a proper characteristic of what it means for God in his own nature to be God. Whereas circumscription, or uh, we might use another, uh, maybe more clumsy term, locatedness, there is a certain locatedness to God, and that is part of human nature. And so when 
our formula of Concord wants to make a clear distinction between the two natures of Christ and one person. It does so in terms of different modes of presence and the qualities or the characteristics that are pertinent to each of these natures. Circumscription simply being something that is natural to the created order. It has boundaries. It is this big and no further. And so God is not circumscribed because he is not created. And so he has no bounds and there is no end to who he is or, or what he is. So we've gotten to talk a bit about who God is and who the per- uh, and describing the persons of the Trinity. But near the end of our section of the Creed for today, uh, and I think I'd like to reread this part, there are some, some distinctions, and it seems like they use really specific words. And I, this is probably a good thing for us to spend some time on. In, in paragraphs uh, 19 through 24, it goes like this. Just as we are compelled by the Christian truth to acknowledge each distinct person as God and Lord, so also are we prohibited by the Catholic religion to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father is not made, nor created, nor begotten by anyone. The Son is neither made nor created, but begotten of the Father alone. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made, nor created, nor begotten, but proceeding. Probably pause there. This language of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are not created. The Father doesn't isn't begotten, but the Son is. But the Spirit isn't begotten. The Spirit proceeds, but the Father doesn't proceed, and the Son doesn't proceed. Pastor Boyle, can you help me make sense of, of these words about the made, created, begotten, proceeding? What's what's the significance here? Sure. I, I think this is perhaps one of the most important parts of this creed because it does express a fairly high degree of Trinitarian reflection. In, in fact, it may be this portion as well that uh, we start to see Well, this creed, by the way, has sometimes been called the Augustinian Creed. It seems to reflect uh, even more strongly than Athanasius' own formulations here, St. Augustine's in his On the Holy Trinity, where he is uh, thinking through and and reflecting quite quite later than St. Athanasius, as far as that goes, uh, in terms of how it is these three persons relate. And one of the things to pull out from this is certainly on the front end, all of the unity, all of how they each, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each is and shares in the same essence, each is and shares in the same attributes and so forth, which, by the way, I I did quickly take a glance at the Latin of the creed, and when it does speak of Almighty, it uses the word omnipotens. So at least we do get one of those in there. But in any case, all of that is trying to relate the unity. Here in 19 through 22, there is this intentional way of saying, yes, but each is also distinct. And the distinctions are what, well, they're what show forth 
how each is, um, while not separate, distinct from the other, in especially his own, um, this is where the language does matter, but on the one hand, not so much origins, but but the prior priority in the Godhead. And this is a difficult way of speaking, but it does here begin in verse 20 with the Father. The Father... Do you think you could say, Pastor Boyle, yeah. that thinking about origins, I, I recognize it's kind of a touchy word. Would it maybe be easier to say the way that we the way that we see them from a human perspective. Uh, so when we talk about the father being not created nor begotten, uh, but we talk about the son as being begotten because we see him in that begottenness. And then we see the spirit not begotten, but proceeding in his own way. And so it's part of this, our own limited human understanding of, of when we first start to see and recognize the different persons of the Trinity. This it's a good point. And uh, in fact, this is a, an area of much modern, especially, but throughout the history of the church, the debate has often centered on what we call the transcendent trinity versus the imminent trinity. That is to say, to what extent is God in himself this, or to what extent is this who God is in his relation to us? And so um, I don't know if I am willing to say that this portion of the creed intends to speak primarily or only of the imminent quality of God's revelation. So what I mean by that is I don't know if the point of this creed is to talk about simply how we know each of these in their distinction, or if it is to say, and it maybe to me seems more likely that this is trying to describe the transcendent distinctions within the Godhead. And that's, that's who God is all by himself. Exactly. Right? In, in his own being. And that's where it is difficult because we, when we hear language of priority or of hierarchy, we immediately think in terms of a value judgment. And I don't think that's helpful. I don't think it's helpful in any of our talk of hierarchy, but especially in our hierarchy that we find within the Holy Trinity. So here, even, and this is also another reason why we think this is perhaps Augustinian in character, because it has that dreaded filioque clause that uh, the Eastern brothers... Philo who? <laughs> our Eastern brothers do not... Uh, sign off on. Uh, what, what I mean by that is that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And so in, in the Nicene Creed, the Latin phrase is filioque, uh, from the Son. Here, the Latin phrase is et filio sed procedens. And so you get this idea of but proceeding both from the Father and from the Son. Now, that is a another whole debate, which we could certainly unpack at a, another point, but that is strongly in St. Augustine's writings. It seems to be historically very much necessary at this point and in this place due to 
uh, what we're facing in terms of the the vandals and the goths sacking uh, Rome really and and the destruction of this Roman Empire unfolding and that coming from the hands of Arian heretics. And so there seems to be where this confession comes from is a strong defense of who this Christ is as God. And the at least the Western fathers, these Latin fathers, saw it fitting to put this procession of the Spirit from the Son as a way of extolling Christ as God of God, light of light. And so it seems to be an anti-Aryan insertion into the Nicene Creed, as well as here in the Athanasian Creed. Long story short, what we have here then in verses 20 to 22 is a hierarchy of being, so to speak, within the being of the, of the Godhead. You have the Father who is not made, not created, not begotten by anyone. And you'll notice there, there, there's a rhythm and a repetition of the not. This is a sort of cataphonic sort of theology where you're, you're trying to say something positive of who he is while only using negatives to do so. And so he is not made, not created, not generated or begotten. Uh, he is alone. And then the next is the Son, sharing in with the Father that he is not made, not created. And that not created is vital here against the Arians, but begotten. And I think this is a vital word as far as that goes, because to be begotten means to have a father. And, and there must be a begetting. And this is where I said that the language of origins is difficult, but I think important, at least as far as this goes. The Son is begotten in eternity. Not, at a, not as Arius would say, where there was a time when the Son was not. But in the very being of God, there is this begetting, which is to say there's no such thing as Father apart from Son. And so... And that's confessed in Psalm 2, right? Yes. Today I have begotten you. Yeah, it is. And yet at the same time, I don't want to think of this as merely incarnation. Not that the incarnation is ever mere. That's in fact going to follow in the second half of this creed, 27 and following. Uh, and yet that's why I think this is more the transcendence of God that there is this eternal begetting of the Son, who is uh, then that eternal begetting bears forth in time at the incarnation of the blessed Lord from the Virgin Mary. And so, uh, so you have that in time, but here I think this is transcendently in who God is. Then you have the Holy Spirit, who is of the Father, and of the Son, and uh, in that of language, you see also this derivation of being while also sharing in it. And so he is also going to be, just as we said earlier, infinite, holy, uncreated, and so forth. He is here neither made nor created 
nor begotten, but proceeding. And this is his particular character as the Spirit, as proceeding from the Father and the Son. St. Augustine would use this language then to speak of him being this bond of love between the two, that which proceeds from the Father and from the Son towards one another in this unity of love is the Spirit. And so um, this language, I think, of demarcating each of the three according as much as we positively can say how they are distinct is an important aspect for our own Trinitarian thought and reflection. And meanwhile, we still confess that uh, none is greater than any of the other persons of the Trinity. Uh, that's what it says uh, back in the first section, that they are all, um, that there's no preeminence between them. Well, even verse 24 there, this Trinity, none is before or after another, none is greater or less than another. And so you have this idea of, this is why I think it's important for us to recognize that to speak in a hierarchical order does not mean that we are putting a value judgment of greater or less or above or below, but an order through which our Lord in particular would give his gifts. That is an awful lot to say in uh, a relatively short amount of time. Uh, once you get to the Athanasian Creed, all of a sudden an hour-long study on it seems to be not that long. Uh, that's why next week we will get to continue our study of the Athanasian Creed, especially as it turns its attention from the Trinity to the two natures in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we'll be back on Tuesday uh, to discuss that. It is my pleasure to thank Reverend Dr. Jeff Boyle for being with us today, uh, taking a break from the time that you spend serving at Trinity and at Grace Lutheran Churches there in Wichita. Uh, joining me, Pastor Peter Ill, uh, as we're sitting in for Pastor Sean Smith. Please keep Pastor Smith and his uh, young son, Johan, in your prayers as uh, Johan continues to recover from some injuries that he sustained in an accident at home. But we get to continue uh, confessing this true doctrine that we have a faith for all who desire to be saved, a faith of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is almighty eternal, and is indeed our Lord and our God. And it is that faith that we keep confessing, church. Church.